Well, we are in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 today. Uh, We've been walking through the Ten Commandments, one commandment a week, and you'll notice that this week we're skipping the fifth commandment, which is honor your mother and father. And it is not because we're against that one. It's just because uh, on Mother's Day, we'll actually still be in the Ten Commandments. And so we'll do honor your mother and father on Mother's Day. Um, So we are moving uh, past that one today. Uh, Typically, the the law of God, the commandments of God are broken up into two groups. And some people call them the two tables or the two tablets of the law, where the first four commands are commands about how we relate to God. And these are commands that we've already walked through. Commands like, have no other God before me. Uh, Don't worship uh, God in images. Don't take God's name in vain. Keep holy the Sabbath day. And then the second table has the next six commandments, which are the commands about how we relate to one another. And Jesus said all of the laws of God really hang on, on two commandments, to love God and love one another. In in Matthew 22, when someone came up to, to test Jesus, it says, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So all the commands of God can be summed up with love God and love your neighbor. And we've worked through the first four commands, which are the love God commands, and now we're in the the next set, in the next six, which are the love your neighbor commands. And so Exodus 20, verse 13, which is just four words in English, just two in the original Hebrew, says, you shall not murder, which is a good rule. Um, This is kind of part of the moral law of God. Any place that people are writing out the the moral law, this is one they come up with. They think this one should be in there. Uh, The cornerstone of any good society is that people are not murdering one another. Uh, Part of being a good neighbor is not murdering your neighbors. We have a house for sale across the street from us, and, and we hope that the neighbors who buy that house want to obey this command because this is so essential to having a good neighborhood. And of all the commands, we can read this one, and most of us can read with a certain sense of ease. We can feel like, I'm, I'm doing this one. And this one makes us feel like we're obedient. And most of us on the surface level feel really good about it. And we can have some grounds for looking down at some other people. Because we know that murderers are very different than us. Murderers are bad people. They, are, they deserve God's judgment. And we can read through the commands, and, and nine of them might make us feel bad. But for most of us, this one, we can say, at least I'm doing this one. At least I'm better than somebody. And I think this is one of the reasons that all the Netflix documentaries on, on murderers are so popular. Because we can watch them and feel like, well, I'm not that bad. You know, I'm not Manson. Uh, I'm not like that dude in Manitowoc, Wisconsin with the Rob Four. I'm not him. Like, we can look at these people's lives and say, at least in certain categories, I'm better than these other people. But Jesus is never one to allow us to feel smug and superior. He, he doesn't let us get away with that. Um, he, he actually, in his Sermon on the Mount, taught the commandments, but when he taught them, he taught what was actually at the heart of all of them. So if you could turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount, and he reteaches the commandments, but when he does, he makes sure that none of us feel like, I'm doing them all. None of us feel like we can hear them and feel smug and superior to other people. He teaches these commandments and actually gets down at the heart of what's underneath all of them, so that we can all see our real need for a Savior, so we can all see that we still need forgiveness, we still need cleansing, so we all still have to run to him, and so we can all be called actually to a higher standard than what we might be called to just in reading the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. 
And the danger in Christianity is that we come to believe that God just wants us to be religious box checkers. That what God is after is some kind of like surface level obedience. That God wants us to just sort of keep commands on the surface. And if we're doing that, then we're doing all that he requires. And, and we kind of like that. We can like rules. We can like series of commandments because a lot of us are control freaks. And we, we want to be able to control our lives. And when God gives a command and we can check a box, we can say, okay, that's the limit of his control in this category. But everything else is, is up to me. And if I do that thing, then I feel like I'm doing enough, I'm measuring up, I'm keeping the commands, and therefore I'm acceptable before God. But God's commands sometimes, if we use them that way, can make us feel like we're smug and superior. They can make make us feel okay. And sometimes even box checking and commandment keeping can be a big distraction from our real need if we don't see what's at the heart. But Jesus is not after, he's not trying to make a group of religious box checkers. He's trying to go after the hearts of his sons and daughters. He's trying to transform us internally that, yeah, he wants that obedience on the surface for sure, but he wants it to come from the heart. And so to get there, first he exposes what's in the heart so that he can show us our need for a remedy. And so in Matthew 5, 21, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So I'm sure they heard this and they breathed a sigh of relief. Like, okay, I got this one. I, I, can, I can rest for a second during this sermon and not feel convicted because this one I've got down. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he says, you've heard that you get judged for murder, but I want you to know that if you're angry with your brother, that's just as bad. And you hear that and you think, I mean, how could, how could he say that? How could anger be just as bad as murder? Obviously, if somebody that we love is murdered, we're not going to say that anger is just as bad. But Jesus is not here saying that anger is just as destructive as murder. Obviously, murder does a whole lot more damage. But he's getting at a hard issue. He's saying that a murderer is someone who's got anger in his heart that overflows. And if you have the exact same thing in your heart, but it's well-contained and not overflowing into murder, is what's in your heart any different? Are we really any better? Sewage in a pipe is disgusting. When it breaks out of that pipe, it's just as disgusting. It's just more damaging. And he says that the anger that we have in our hearts toward one another is just as disgusting as murder. It's just that murder is more, more damaging. And Jesus wants us to have, have a pipe that is clean. He wants us to be transformed on the inside. He didn't come to make us people who are still disgusting but just contain better. He came to transform us. And you see Jesus all throughout his ministry constantly getting in the faces of people who love to clean the outside, who love to do the religious ritual, who love to kind of check some boxes and keep some commands on the surface while their hearts were far from God. In Matthew 23, verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of the cup and the plate, that the, that, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're all like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Jesus is completely against facades. He doesn't want us to just clean the surface. He he gets at our hearts. 
He doesn't want just surface obedience religious types. He wants outward obedience that reflects an inward change. Uh, when I was in youth ministry for a number of years, we would have a big teen night every week that, that hundreds of kids would come out to. And one of the characteristic smells of that night, um, and there were many, uh, was, was the smell of like the teenage guy who hasn't had a shower in a long time, but who is not sparing at all in his use of Axe body spray. Like who somewhere along the line came to believe that even if you haven't been able to get a shower this week, Axe body spray is just as good as long as you use plenty of it. And... If you're familiar with that aroma, you know that he believed a horrible lie, um, that, that that doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't make anything better. It actually makes it worse. And sometimes, despite the fact that the whole storyline of the Bible is the story of a Savior coming to give us a new heart so that there can be inward change um, and, and then outward response, we often come to believe that all God wants is outward obedience and some religious ritual keeping, that God just wants us to check some boxes. He wants us to spray on plenty of religious rituals, plenty of rule-keeping, so that we'll be as good as clean. But Jesus comes, and he is after repentance and faith in the gospel to get sin out at its source, which will then change the exterior, but change it in a far more significant way than just giving us commands would ever change it. So he goes on in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So the word insults here is the Greek word raka, and it's a a strong word. It was probably one of the strongest words in their language. And the dictionary definition of this word is it's a term expressing contempt, scorn, or disdain. It's to call someone empty or a vain or worthless one. It signifies a lack of intellect, i.e. imbecile or blockhead. And I know that nobody here is calling anybody a blockhead, Unless you're Charlie Brown, it's not, he's not after a word that we use, but he's after a heart attitude that treats us as superior and other people as inferior. It's, he's going after a heart attitude where, where we start to treat other, other people like they're worthless, or at least that they're worth less than us. And when he says that we're not to call someone you fool, again, he's not going after a word. I mean, the word here is the Greek word moros, where we get our word moron. But he's not just trying to get us to stop calling people morons. He's going after the deep-seated belief that we carry that other people are worthless and other people are less valuable than we are. And he puts thinking that way in the same category as murder. When we hate, when we're angry, when we despise, and we treat other people as worthless, he says what's going on in our hearts is the exact same thing that's going on in a murderer's heart. We just have it a little bit more contained. And God doesn't want us to have unchanged hearts. He wants us to believe the the Christian story. He wants us to believe the gospel and actually have that have an effect on our lives. I mean, we know that that the, the story of the Bible begins with the creation where God makes man and woman in his image. In Genesis 127, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So everyone on earth bears God's image. And how we treat God's image says something about how we feel about God. If you have a a picture of someone in your office hanging on your dartboard, and someone comes in and says, hey, wow, you must really have a problem with that person, you can't say, no, I don't have any problem with that person at all. I just don't like that picture. (laughs) Because that picture is a picture of them. And how you treat that image says something about your relationship with them. And we believe as Christians that God has made everybody in his image 
And how we treat those who are made in his image says something about how we feel about God. We can't treat someone's image poorly and love that person. We can't claim to love God and then despise the people who are made in his image. And we'll do this in all kinds of ways. We'll do this with with racism, where we'll treat a whole group of people made in God's image like they're less valuable than us or less valuable than others. Uh, we'll We'll do this when we look down on people of different races or different cultures or immigrants from different countries, and we feel like I'm more valuable than they are. We'll do this if we treat the elderly like they're less valuable now, as if their value came from their youth and vitality and that that went away when they got older. We do this when we treat poor people with less respect than the rich, as if the rich are somehow made in the image of God and and poor people are not carrying it. It's like putting God's picture up on our dartboard when we do that. And we do this when we ignore people with disabilities, when we act with disdain or disregard for people who are weaker or, for, or who are more helpless, because we believe that you somehow bear the image of God more if you're able to help yourself, but if you're helpless, not as much. And we certainly do this when we treat the unborn as if they're not made in God's image. And I don't think we could talk about this command not to murder without realizing that this command is broken in a horrible way every day in our culture that we treat the most defenseless among us, babies in the womb, like they're not in God's image. And we've taken their lives about 60 million times since 1973. You probably saw the video this past January when the New York State Senate cheered as they passed a law that allowed abortion until birth under certain circumstances. And when the governor was challenged on it, he, he said that he understands the church's position, but quote, I'm not here to legislate religion. But the thing is, in passing these laws, we are legislating a religious viewpoint. It's definitely not a scientific one. I mean, science says that that's a human baby. I mean, we know this. We know this because we will save the lives of babies that are 22 weeks along when they're they're born early, but then we will abort the lives of others that are far more developed than that. We'll do life-saving surgery on a baby in the womb while across town we're aborting a baby that's the exact same age. And it's not science that says one of them is a child and the other one isn't. It's a religion. It's not science that says one is a person and, and made in the image of God and the other one is not. It's a religion that says that. It's a false religion. And it's a false religion that is being forced on those babies. It'd be great if we stuck with science. It's a religion that says that a child gets his or her worth when they're wanted by a parent. But until then, they're just a cluster of cells. That's not a scientific viewpoint at all. That's that's clearly a religious one. It says that the child changes substance when, when the parents want them. It's a pagan transubstantiation. That at a certain moment, a parent can pronounce worth on a child, and at that moment, it becomes human. There's nothing scientific about that at all. It's a religious viewpoint. But the Christian view is that when a child is conceived, that child has dignity and worth, and that child is made in the image of God. And the fact that someone is helpless and defenseless doesn't make them any less valuable or any less in the image of God than others. And I hope that someday in our culture, we'll be able to look back on what we've done Uh, the same way that the Germans look back on the Holocaust and 
and someday that we'll be able to weep and repent over, over what we've allowed to happen under our noses because we know what's going on. And I hope that in the meantime, we as Christians will work to cherish all life and that we'll work to support mothers who keep their children in difficult circumstances. I hope that we'll celebrate all life, even when it was conceived under situations that may have been sinful. And I hope that we'll be a people that never say raka to anybody, especially the weakest and the most frail and the most dependent and the most vulnerable. And I hope that also because we know that we've received God's grace, even though we had murderous hearts, that we will extend the message of God's grace even to people who have had abortions, even to people who have have fallen in this very category, that we'll say that God's grace is enough to forgive even that sin, that you can repent and believe, and Jesus died for even that, and you can be forgiven and brought into the family of God and, and treated no differently than anyone else because of what Jesus has done for you. I hope that that's the gospel we continue to extend while we pray and wait for things to change. The image of God is in absolutely everybody. It's important that we don't start to think that the image of God is just in Christians who are living the right way. And sometimes we, we will look at, at people who aren't living for God or they're living in rebellion to God's design, against God's design and we'll think that they're not worthy of dignity, they're not worthy of respect because they're disobedient to God. But it's not obedience to God that makes us in God's image. The image of God is not some virtue that we work toward and then finally obtain. It's something that's imparted to us at the moment of conception. It's something that's always ours. All people are made in God's image. Which means that Christians should be the people who respect our neighbors the most. Especially the the neighbors that we disagree with. Especially the neighbors that we don't see living for God. That we don't treat ourselves like we're somehow more in the image of God than they are. Man, they were stamped with the image of God, which means that there is beauty in them. There's something to learn from them. There's something to be fascinated about in them. There's something to be gained in relationship with them. There are virtues to notice, even in people who, who don't know Jesus and are not walking with Jesus. There's so much. It will engage us more with our neighbor to know that everybody we meet was made in God's image. C.S. Lewis said, said this. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible, lowercase g, gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It, it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, and civilizations, those are mortal. And their life is ours as to the life, their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. The only kind of people we ever run into are people that are made in the image of God. And so even if they're not living the right way or honoring God's image, and even if they completely deny that they were made in God's image, it's there. They're stamped in it. They can't get away from it. And when we meet people that are living in rebellion against that, 
We don't look at them with disdain because we remember what God did for us when we were living in rebellion against that. I mean, that was all of our stories. All of us by nature and by choice were, were sinful. We were rebellious against God. We picked up arms against God. We were fighting against him. But Romans 5, 8 says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if we deny people around us love and care, we're not acting like our Savior acted. When we say, I'm going to cut off all the difficult people in my life, we're doing the opposite of what Jesus did. And if Jesus, who is perfect, thought that it was worth the time and the effort to lay down his life for a sinner like me, how much more should I, who am imperfect, be willing to lay down my desire to feel superior to people around me who honestly are just like me? I mean, in other words, the the gap between me and any person that I might think I'm superior to is infinitely smaller than the gap between me and Jesus. And so I might think, oh, they're beneath me, they're below me, they're not worth my time, they're not worth my effort, they're not worth my service, and I can start to treat them like that. We have to look at how Jesus treated us when we were infinitely below him, rebellious against him, literally had nothing to offer him whatsoever, but he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came and gave his life so that we could have life. And if Jesus, who is absolutely perfect, thought that it was worth the time and the effort to lay down his life for a sinner like me, how much more should I, who am imperfect, be willing to lay down my life for people around me who who really are just like me? The only one who is actually qualitatively different than us was Jesus, and he gave himself for us. And so scripture calls us in response to that as worshipers of that Jesus who are becoming like that God that we worship to to live that way toward other people. Listen to Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he says, in response to what Jesus did for us, we do nothing from rivalry, we do nothing from conceit or arrogance, we count others more significant than ourselves, we don't look out for ourselves first, we make ourselves nothing, we serve people like Jesus who went as far as giving his life. That's the life that Christians are called to. And then look how Jesus applies this in Matthew 5. Again, Matthew 5, 21, he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So there's the foundation, and then this is what he says we should do with that. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So he says that unchecked anger in our hearts is really the same thing that's in the heart of a murderer. So he says if you're coming to do your your ritual, your religious thing, and you remember that you've got that unchecked anger in your heart, he says take care of that anger first. But notice he doesn't just give us like an internal exercise to do. He doesn't just say, well, fix that in your soul 
before you leave your gift on the altar. He says, go and reconcile with your brother. He doesn't separate body and soul. He doesn't separate material from immaterial. He he doesn't want us to just have spiritual effects from coming to know Jesus, but the things that affect us spiritually affect all of our lives. And he uses the setting here of coming to offer a sacrifice, to do this outward religious ritual. And when we do rituals, either back then or now, they're, they're outward things that we do to remind ourselves of Jesus, which isn't bad. But we know that they can be done without a changed heart. I mean, if you take, for example, going to church, the ritual we're doing right now, we know that we can sit here for an hour and we can sing the songs, we can put money in the box, and we can do that all the while while we're harboring sin in our hearts, being angry at someone, and refusing to forgive. The rituals are pretty easy to do. We can do them with a completely unchanged heart. I mean, outward observances are necessary and they're good, and we, we need to be doing those things But Jesus is never after just outward observance. He's after heart change. And so Jesus gives us this huge test of our hearts here. He says, go and reconcile with the brothers and sisters that you have broken relationships with. And if you can do that, as far as it depends on you, then you're showing that there's been a real heart change. And then from there, you can sing the songs as overflow of a transformed heart. From there, you can do the outward things. You can put the money in. You can take the Lord's Supper. You can listen to the Word. You can pray the prayers. You can do all those things as an overflow. They're important things to do. But he says, first go and reconcile with your brother. And so often, I think, we'll think that we're doing a good job as Christians if we're participating in the religion of our particular church. As long as we're going to services, as long as we're singing the songs, as long as we serve in the program somewhere, as long as we contribute, then we're doing what's at the heart of Christianity. But Jesus says if we're doing those things while allowing there to be totally broken relationships with our brothers and sisters, then those outward things are a sham. They're just the axe body spray. Doing all those religious things, they're they're good things and they're commanded by God, but they really are just the the aroma of the Christian life. They're, They're not the heart issue. So Jesus says, reconcile and then go offer your gift. Do your works of service, do the rituals, but do the heart things first. And if we're humble and we realize that someone has something against us, then, then we can go to them, confess our sin, and begin a process to reconcile. But we might be sitting here going, all right, I think I'm okay because I've got a lot of broken relationships, but in all of those cases, it's the other person's fault. I mean, it's, it, it's on them. I, I, I was the innocent party. They were always the guilty party. And so there are a lot of those things, but I'm okay because all of those are on them and none of them are on me. Well, first of all, if we're humble it should be really difficult for us to believe that in our day-to-day broken relationships, it's 100% them and 0% me. There's some situations like that. You know, there's, there's some like truly abusive situations, and these are not commands to go back and you know, face an abuser so they can abuse you more or anything like that. But in our normal day-to-day broken relationships, usually some of it comes from us. Usually some of it's my fault. But even if you can reason your way through all of that and think, yep, my, my broken relationships are completely because of other people, 0% because of me. In Matthew 18, when Jesus gives some similar commands, he actually reverses it. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go to him and be reconciled. So he doesn't get us off the hook just because it's the other guy's fault. He says, yeah, yeah, even when it's the other guy's fault, you go to him. 
You be proactive. We do the work to reconcile. We take the initiative. We're humble. We're willing to listen to what the other person thinks that our faults are because there's probably some truth there. We're willing to confess to one another. We're willing to pray with one another if they're willing. We work to get the relationship restored. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. And when he says peacemakers in the Sermon on the Mount, Leon Morris points out that he's not saying peacekeepers, but peacemakers. We're not just passive forces for peace in a broken situation, but active forces for reconciliation. Actively going to work to to bring relationships together. And we're doing this in the image of God, who's the ultimate peacemaker. I mean, look at us. It was 100% our fault in that falling out we had between us and God. He was 0% to blame. It was all on us. It was all of our sin. It was all our failure. He owed us nothing. He needed nothing from us. And he actively came. He actively came to bring about that reconciliation. He actively came and laid down his life so that we could be forgiven. He pursued us so that he could forgive us, even though it was 0% his fault. So Jesus' desire is, is not that we would look around this room, like here at church, is not that we would look around with suspicion and distrust and a trail of broken relationships. It's not that we would just live our lives with, with bitterness and just screw down that hatch as tight as we can and then hope that it doesn't blow so that we can make it through a church service in a civil manner and then go home and go all passive-aggressive on social media. Like, that's not the the beauty of the sons and daughters of God coming together as one family that Jesus is trying to bring about. He's not just trying to help us be people with really well-corked anger. He's working to transform our hearts. And so it's important, especially before we take this Lord's Supper together, to evaluate ourselves and ask, like, when I look around the room, are, are there people that I'm bitter against and angry against? And you know that we're still bitter and we're still, we're still holding something against them if, if we think of them and all kinds of negative emotions come up. Or if when we think of them and the things that they've done to us, we remember in detail the evil they committed against us, even if it happened months and years ago. It's a sure sign of bitterness because we remember details only when we rehearse them over and over again. Like good experiences, we just kind of remember in general. We remember the mood, we remember the day, don't necessarily remember all the details, but it was just a wonderful experience, it was a good day. When someone's done something wrong against us, when someone's sinned against us, we just tend to play that over and over in our heads. And so if there's someone you've got a broken relationship with and you remember, she said this, and then I said this, and then she said this, and then I said this, and then would you believe she said this, and then I said this, and I felt this way, and you remember all those details? The reason you remember those details over time is because bitterness is, is playing those things over and over and over in your head. You, you've done this rote memorization of the thing that made you bitter, and there's something that needs to be forgiven. There's some reconciliation that needs to be done. And we have all the tools we need in the gospel. We have all the tools for radical forgiveness because we see the radical forgiveness that God gave us. We have all the tools for mercy because we know, man, I needed mercy from God. I didn't become a Christian without God radically showing mercy and love and grace that was completely undeserved. So if he's done that for me, I can certainly do that for someone else. 
All those tools are built into the gospel. All the tools for active love because Jesus actively loved me. All the tools for humility because just think of what we admitted to become Christians. To become Christians, we had to admit that we are sinful. We had to admit a certain degree of helplessness, that we can't save ourselves, that we can't fix our problems on our own. We admitted that we're a wreck. And so when it comes up again and it turns out that we've sinned in a relationship, that shouldn't be surprising. And it shouldn't be hard to get us to admit that we've somehow committed some wrong. It shouldn't be hard for us to forgive someone who's wronged us and is asking for forgiveness because we know, man, Jesus has done all this stuff for us. We've already experienced this. We're just replaying the gospel in all of our personal relationships. If you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, this is the, the passage where Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper, and he's talking about it specifically in light of the church community and the relationships that are going on there. And he says this in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So he's writing to this church, and he says there are divisions there. And their divisions are a little bit different than ours. It seems like their divisions were a little bit more between the rich and the poor. And the rich people could get off work when they wanted, so they got to, to church early. They would eat, and then the poor people would come after their long shift, and everything was gone. And so you had rich people being preferred and looking down at the poor, and there were divisions among them there. But Paul looked at this divided church, and he says, a broken church is really bad news. Divisions between one another are, are really bad news. And then the resources he gives them to heal those divisions come in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, night that he was wronged, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he says there are divisions in the church, and the remedy for them is to remember what Jesus did. That Jesus took the bread and he tore it, and he said, This is my body, and it was torn for you. That when Jesus went to that cross, which is what's symbolized in the bread that we eat, he was torn, and one of the reasons he was torn was so that we don't have to be torn from one another, so that the sins we have against one another could be forgiven. There, there was reconciliation that got accomplished at the cross. One is we were reconciled to God, and two, we were reconciled to one another. And this is huge because sometimes we'll, we'll sin against each other and we'll go and talk to that person and they might even say, yeah, I'm really sorry. They might confess that thing. But then we go away and we keep playing it in our head. And we say, you know, I just don't know if their apology was sincere. I don't know if they know how bad that thing was that they did against me. I don't know if they know what an effect that had. 
I don't know if they know the damage they caused, and I don't even know if they're, they're going to keep doing it. I think they just wanted to get out of that conversation. And we play all those suspicions in our heads. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying, this is the death of my suspicions. That, that even if all of my suspicions are true, Jesus died for those things. Jesus was punished for those things, so I can stop punishing you for those things in my head. I can be free from those. And, and if my suspicions are true, I can let the Lord deal with that. We're, we're taking this table together, and there are warnings about people who take the table in an unworthy manner, and I just totally trust that Jesus will, will sort all of that out so I can be completely free from it. You know, the death of Jesus is, is the satisfaction for all of our sins against God and also for all of our suspicions against one another. And when we take this Lord's Supper, we're remembering what Jesus did so that we can boldly approach God as his sons and daughters, but also so we can boldly approach one another as reconciled brothers and sisters. And then the warning he gives who people who, for people who won't take it in this manner, in verse 27 he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So this moment of taking the Lord's Supper is a moment of, of self-examination. It's, it's a moment to examine our reconciliation with God. And that's the first question we need to ask ourselves before we take the supper is, am I reconciled with God? And this is not just that I've done a religious ritual. It's not just that I've asked him for forgiveness or something like that. It's that I've really repented, like that I've, I've yielded, I, I've bowed before him, that I've laid down my arms We don't just say, Jesus, forgive me, and I'm going to keep doing exactly what I want to do and then say, forgive me again next week. Like, that's not repentance. Now, we need that, and we need the forgiveness again and again and again, but repentance says, I'm going to go to war against these sins. I'm going to really renounce them. Like, this is not okay. It's not okay for a Christian to be doing, so I confess it, I ask forgiveness, and I go to war. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, surely no rebel can expect the king to pardon his treason while he remains in open revolt. When you go to a king to ask for pardon for treason, you're laying down your arms and you're kneeling. You're not aiming your bow at him and saying, please forgive me. But so often we think coming to Christ is continuing to aim our bow at him and say, I'm going to live my life how I want. Don't touch my lifestyle. Don't touch my beliefs. Don't touch what I want to do. Just forgive me. And that's not the the posture of someone who receives a pardon. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're asking ourselves, have I believed in Christ and his death for me, that it paid the price for me? Have I confessed all my sin and really laid down my arms? Have I said no more of this rebellion? And knowing me, yeah, I'm going to rebel more this week. But I've renounced it and I'm waging war against it. And if I keep getting knocked down, I will keep getting back, keep getting back up and fighting that more because I'm not going to be in rebellion against my king. And for those who really repent and turn to him and believe, forgiveness is ours. And so we can take this supper with boldness, knowing that even though I have been a wretch, even though I've been a rebel, he's forgiven me and it's enough and he welcomes me as a son or a daughter. So that's the first question we ask. Am I reconciled with God? 
And then the other question we ask is, have we been reconciled to one another? Have we done everything we can to reconcile when there are broken relationships? Have we brought up the grievances? Have we confronted things? Have we corrected? Have we asked questions and sought to understand one another? Have we confessed our suspicion? Have have we asked forgiveness wherever we can? And then can we really look at it and say, as far as it depends on me, I've done whatever I can to reconcile with others. And then for everything that's lingering and all those lingering suspicions, we take this supper saying, it was all paid for by Jesus. So I'm not going to make you pay by being bitter. I'm not going to pay by being bitter. We're going to let Jesus pay the price and we're going to be united with one another. So in a minute, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper. And this is just for Christians who, who can answer those questions. Yes, yes, I'm reconciled to God. And yes, I've done everything I can to reconcile to one another. Uh, if you're not a Christian, we would urge you to stay in your seat during the Lord's Supper. You don't need to be a member of this church. You don't need to be a Christian who knows everything or someone who's been a Christian for long. But if you have been reconciled to God and you're reconciled to others, then, then we take this supper together saying Jesus is the one who paid it all, and, and that's great news. So when Jesus says, don't murder, he says, here's the application of that command. Be reconciled. And it's the call on all of our lives. So let's pray. Well, Lord, we marvel that you would take on flesh and blood in order to be crucified and murdered for us. You humbled yourself and submitted yourself to the hatred of people. You you accepted the thorns and the whip and the nails and the spear to free us from our sin forever. You still dreaded the pain and the separation from your father. You loved him more than life. But for the joy set before you, you endured the cross and endured its shame. So we praise you for your obedience. We praise you that you paid the enormous debt of all of our sin. And we admit that we desperately need your righteousness to stand in the place of our unrighteousness. And although many here haven't actually killed anyone, we confess that we've all hated that our hearts rise up to judge other people and disdain and condemn them, to dismiss them, to murder their reputations through gossip and slander. We're still capable of great unkindness towards our enemies and towards our loved ones, especially when we feel fearful and threatened and disrespected and proud. So Lord, forgive us for our unruly and self-centered and murderous hearts. And Jesus, we confess that we're helpless to change our hearts. So so through the power of your spirit, we ask for more grace to see this truth about ourselves. Help us to confess honestly the ways that we hate you and one another. And we ask for that gift of repentance. We ask that you would help us to die to ourselves more deeply. Make us people who breathe life into others with words of encouragement and edification instead of hating with our hearts and killing with our lips. Holy Spirit, crucify our sinful desires and make us like Christ. Capture our hearts again with the truth of the gospel. Transform us by your love so that we could love others and lift them up. Form us into a people who will endure costly relational pain for the sake of loving and forgiving our worst enemies. 
And Jesus, we thank you that we're not going to struggle with this ugliness inside forever. We thank you that you rose and you've promised that we will rise again someday. That you're going to return and and bring about a resurrection to, to allow us to have lives of perfect holiness and perfect obedience and perfect love. And so that fills us with hope and joy that the battle has been won and that you will walk with us faithfully until you come and welcome us to live with you forever. So help us to be patient. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's all stand and worship. And uh, if you have put your trust in Christ, you can take the Lord's Supper in the front, in the back, or in the front, in the back of the balcony.